Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The administration describes where we are now as strategic competition, and China responds, well, that's inappropriate, and we're not going to sign on to that, and so on. I do believe we've left strategic competition in the dust, especially in the wake of the release of the national security strategy by the Biden administration, and we're probably now in full-up strategic rivalry. But in my mind, there's another step, which would be what I would call strategic enmity. In other words, I know X policy is bad for me, but it's 2% worse for you, so I'm going to do it anyway. That's the kind of rivalry and enmity that we saw in the Cold War, and I just don't think we're quite there yet. But um, we're headed in that direction, and I think that's deeply troubling. Chris Johnson is the president and CEO of the China Strategies Group, a political risk consultancy. He is also senior fellow on Chinese politics at the Asia Society. Finally, he is a former colleague of mine and senior China analyst at the CIA. Chris joins us today to talk about the just-concluded Chinese Communist Party Congress. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Chris, welcome back again to Intelligence Matters. It's um, great to have you on the show, of course, but... But also thank you for taking the time 
today to talk about the party congress in China. I know you're extremely busy talking to your clients about what this means for them. So thank you so much for taking the time and welcome back. Absolutely. My pleasure. Always happy to be here, Michael. So let's start with kind of the basics here for those who might not fully understand what a party congress is. But, you know, what is a party congress in China? How often is it held? And what is it supposed to accomplish? Well, a party congress is basically the opportunity for the Chinese leadership to telegraph not only its policy priorities, but also who are the individuals who are going to be running this uh, very important and dynamic country, certainly the second largest economy in the world and increasingly uh, seen as a peer to the United States. So obviously, they're very important. They happen every five years, or at least they have since the end of the Cultural Revolution. And I think they're important basically on both a mechanical and a substantive level. Mechanically, by holding them consistently every five years, it telegraphs to both the domestic and really the international national audiences that China is stable and that the Chinese Communist Party is unified and fully in charge of the country. And those are important opticists, right, in a regime where their legitimacy is not rooted in constitutional norms or shared values as they are in other polities. Uh, Substantively, they are meant really, in my mind, to do two things. The first is to lay out the leadership's current ideological framing of both the domestic opportunities and challenges the country is facing, but also its sort of perception or analysis of the geopolitical environment. And that's accomplished through the speech that the sitting party secretary delivers at the opening of each Congress. And that's called the political work report or just the political report oftentimes. So at the 20th Party Congress, for example, Xi Jinping sketched out a fairly dark picture of both of those elements, I think, in his political report. For example, longstanding catchphrases that signaled that the Politburo not only saw peace and economic development as the dominant theme of the global order, but that that would be an enduring trend. Those were both gone in the report this time, and they were replaced with what Xi Jinping in the speech called a spirit of struggle, uh, which in my mind was a clear throwback to the Mao period when arguably the PRC faced its period of maximum danger in the aftermath of the split with the Soviet Union and facing persistent hostility from the U.S. and the West following the Korean War. So the other substantive aspect, of course, is the reshuffling of the top leadership in the Politburo and its standing committee. Again, in this case, those seven men, and they're all men, which is at the apex of power in China. Uh, As you know well, Michael, personnel is the coin of the realm in, in any political system, but it is particularly so, I think, in a Leninist system like China's, where a top leader's power is directly proportional to his control over the key levers of power and the parties control bureaucracy. So we're talking about propaganda, the security services, the military, and the party bureaucracy, she now dominates all of those areas in the wake of the party congress. So that's very important. So let's dig into the substantive side of what you just talked about. You know, it appears to me, Chris, that this was a comprehensive sweep by Xi Jinping in terms of the new leadership lineup, right? But most of the media and the analysis that I've seen read in the last 24, 48 hours seems to have seen this as a surprise. Did it surprise you? It didn't, really. Uh, Certainly at at China's Strategies Group, we've been telling our clients for at least the last year, really, to expect exactly this sort of a disruptive outcome and that we saw, you know, no real signs of serious opposition to Xi Jinping. You know, you may recall, I think we talked about it on a previous podcast episode. In the spring, there was a lot of speculation that 
pushback from Xi Jinping's supposed factional rivals over his policy mistakes like supporting Putin uh, in the war in Ukraine, uh, the retention, obviously, of the COVID-0 policy and the crackdowns on the tech and the property sector, that that would mean that he would right. have to compromise on personnel appointments. And, you know, at that time in June, I, I wrote a piece in the Financial Times refuting that sort of logic. And then at the Asia Society, we also put out a couple of papers in August saying that it was sort of likely that she would break these norms, like the age restrictions for the Politburo that had been followed in previous Congresses, and that really the exercise of raw power was going to be a better framing for understanding the outcomes than adherence to these norms. But in my mind, I think you know Xi Jinping himself made it pretty clear to us early on that this was what he intended to do. You know, From my perspective, through his actions and statements since coming to power, he's shown himself to be a person who you know, tends to reject the sort of cautious stepwise approach to personnel and policy that dominated under his two predecessors, Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao. And I think, in fact, he believes that approach contributed to the corruption and what he calls laxity that were dominating the party that his peers actually hired him to take on when he came to power. And so along those lines, from my perspective, the biggest tell about his intentions here was a line from the party history resolution that was passed at the uh, sixth plenum of the previous Central Committee in November of last year, where it sort of stated rather mockingly, you know, big problems that needed to be solved for a long time have not been solved, and many big things that have wanted to be done have not been done in the past. That clear indictment of his predecessors to me was a very strong signal that he intended to kind of wipe the last vestiges of their rule from his new era. And that meant dumping, you know, their supporters in the existing leadership. And so you talked about the getting rid of the norms, right? The violation of the norms, the notional rules, right? Age restrictions, you know, some sense of meritocracy in terms of who gets ahead, that seems to be gone, you know, and so on. There was also a hope, I think, that and, and I think that we talked about, right, that some leaders who were not close to Xi would be retained in the top leadership, you know, as a check on power. You know, that clearly didn't happen. So what does all this mean? What's, what's the implications of all of this for how the country is going to be ruled going forward? Well, I think it's uh, fair to say that the new leadership lineup tells us clearly that in Xi Jinping's political ecosystem, loyalty, certainly, and what we might call virtuocracy, I'll come back to that in a minute, have trumped meritocracy. I mean, clearly the choice of Xi acolytes to run the key economic portfolios, the sort of appointment of the current party boss of Beijing, Tai Chi, another really close Xi Jinping ally, to run the party affairs portfolio on the standing committee, they seem to underscore the loyalty piece in my mind. And many observers believe there were more competent candidates to run those portfolios. And I would agree, you know, with that, with that comment. And I'm sure we'll talk more later about, you know, the sort of economic appointments and their implications. But I think for now, let's just suffice it to say that in my mind, the choices make sense in light of the framing that she delivered in his political work report about a more sort of inward looking economy. And coming back to what I mean by virtuocracy, you know, the, the official explainer that the party released uh, discussing the criteria that were used for the selections to the Central Committee, which, of course, you have to be a member of the Central Committee to be on the Politburo, hammered away on this idea that officials needed to be upright ideologically in supporting Xi Jinping and the leading role of his thought in the system, the so-called uh, two establishes, but also free from corruption. And that's, I think, a really important point. All of the people that she appointed to the Politburo have, you know, from what we can tell, clean backgrounds, or at least largely 
queen and certainly support these ideological goals and, and, and she's power. By contrast, you know, one could argue that another strong candidate for the premiership, for example, Wang Yang, who was in the previous uh, Politburo Standing Committee, did not pass that test, uh, perhaps because his daughter had worked for a foreign private equity firm for five years before uh, suddenly leaving last year. And things like that in Xi Jinping's eyes, I think, reflect an insufficient commitment to the purity and uprightness that he's trying to have the party reflect to the Chinese people. So Chris, there's been a lot of attention paid to the very awkward departure of Xi's predecessor, former President Hu Jintao, you know, from the floor of the Congress on its closing day, you know, with some speculation that he was forcibly removed. I know you've watched the video, I know you've looked at it hard. You know, the official regime um, explanation is that he was ill and so had to depart. But I'm seeing reports that his name is now being censored in China. What do you think happened here? <laughs> well, it was certainly dramatic. And uh, as you said, um, uh, you and I both had looked at the video quite a bit and sought some views from uh, some of our former friends in, in the CIA about how to think about it and so on. You know, my bottom line, I think, is we don't really know. And, and you know, because it's such an opaque system, we may never know. But I think we can say a few things. Uh, for myself, you know, the first few times I watched the video of his departure, he did look frail to me and somewhat confused, you know, sort of shuffling yeah. around for papers and, and so on. So it seemed plausible that perhaps he'd had some kind of a health episode. But then watching it more times, once he decided to leave, he did seem to walk out pretty quickly <laughs> with assistance um, yeah, and, and yeah. didn't seem to be struggling. Um, so there's also the fact, as we were just discussing, that all of his people were dropped from the new lineup, despite some pretty clear indications that they were still in the mix, perhaps even as late as the Congress was opening. In other words, this could have been a last minute move by Xi Jinping. So on that score, I mean, the fact that even his youngest protege, Hu Chunhua, who had been on the previous Politburo, had every reason to stay, not only was he not promoted to the standing committee, perhaps as premier or vice premier in the future, but was dropped from even the Politburo. So that's a stunning humiliation for both uh, what they call in the system, Big Hu, Hu Jintao, and Little Hu, <laughs> Hu Chunhua. So it's possible in my mind that the elder Hu was making some sort of a fuss, right? And then she decided to have him removed. I guess what I would underscore is it did not seem to be a coincidence to me that the media cameras were allowed back into the hall just as Hu Jintao was being escorted out. So, you know, whatever the true reasons, the visual in my mind was a vivid display, you know, of Xi's power and perhaps we could say his ruthlessness uh, as the rest of the leadership, you know, kind of sat nervously sweating and, and stone faced while all of that scene was playing out. And I think, you know, that said, we should also say this is not a good look, right, for leadership unity and uh, could make Xi Jinping look like a tyrant. Maybe he doesn't care, but uh, I think even for Xi, it's it's regrettable. And uh, that may explain the censoring you highlighted, although I think it's important to underscore that leadership names are only sensitive. So, for example, for years, searches on Jiang Zemin sometimes get censored. Um, so I don't think that alone means that Hu Jintao will be formally punished or or that uh, and that Xi you know, probably thinks the humiliation was plenty. <laughs> so Chris, when you've been on the show before, you've really emphasized the importance of ideology, you know, that it still matters to the Chinese Communist Party and especially so under Xi. And I'm wondering whether there, whether there were any new developments in this area that tell us anything about Xi's power in addition to the huge win he had on personnel. 
Well, I think, you know, that's an area where perhaps she did not actually get everything he wanted. Um, You know, I think as we've discussed previously on the podcast, one of his goals seemed to be this desire on his part to truncate uh, his current clunky sort of 12-word ideological framework. I call it Xi Jinping thought for horribly long name because it is so (laughs) clunky, down to just uh, Xi Jinping thought, which of course would have put him on a par with Mao Zedong alone, right? And from the party congress's resolution on the revisions that are going to be made to the party constitution, where that likely would have shown up, it did not appear that that had happened, at least for now. So, you know, that said, the revisions that are being made, though, I think basically in endorse every favorite buzzword, all of the policy platforms, so things like the new development concept and common prosperity and so on. And so I believe it also amounts to probably the most extensive revisions to the Constitution ever made outside of the several times in their history where they've just rewritten it entirely. So we don't really know whether she felt that was good enough or there was resistance to giving him that ultimate brass ring and an audacious step of putting him on par himself on par with Mao. But it may be a distinction, I think, without a difference, given that all of his sort of, you know, meaningful priorities will now be in the Constitution. And so his I guess we could call it his theoretical genius score, right? Is as close to Mao's as perhaps is possible. And, you know, also Xi Jinping has demonstrated himself over time to be somebody who never gives up, right? So he establishes a plan and then he works very assiduously, even if it takes years. And, you know, he's telling us he's going to be around for quite a long time. So he may get there uh, at some point in the future. And this was enough for now when in conjunction with the, the massive sweep on personnel, which obviously was a very important goal for him. So what does this mean for the rule for life desire on his part? Well, I think, you know, what we can say is that there's no obvious successor uh, anywhere, you know, in the Politburo or in the full central committee. Most of the Politburo members are of an age where they could not serve as Xi Jinping's successor. I think it has become sort of a a foregone assumption in in most media and, and commentary takes that he intends to rule for life. I personally have always been somewhat doubtful of that, or at least open to the possibility that he won't want to do that. I think, you know, this is an interesting aspect of this sort of episode with Hu Jintao as well. You know, we're always looking for signs. She is often compared in, again, in that sort of media or general conversation take as uh, comparable to Mao, right, or to Stalin, Uh, you know, these people who did stay, obviously, for life. My view has always been he's not those people. He's not the sort of whimsical people that both Mao and Stalin were, but rather, given his uh, difficult upbringing, where he went from you know the heights of of being the son of a very powerful official early in the in the regime, and then when his father was purged during the Cultural Revolution, he undertook great hardship. As someone who is more cautious, actually, and not inclined to that, so my sense is. He does see himself, though, as a man of history. I think that's fair to say. Maybe not a messianic <laughs> leader, but certainly someone who's out to accomplish a cause. And that's all over the, his political report to this Congress. With that being the case, he's going to stay in office as long as he thinks it uh, will take him to do so. Again, coming back to this idea that you know big problems that should have been resolved weren't and so on. This is a long-term project. And so I expect him to stay at least, uh, obviously, this term, probably another five, 2027 to 2032. And then we'll see after that. And of course, you know, now that all of the sort of rival groupings, if you will, have been eliminated from the Politburo, it will be interesting to see if she's own lieutenants, right, begin to fight amongst themselves over power and influence going forward in the run up to whatever will ultimately be that succession. So let's, Chris, let's turn to some 
policy implications of all this. And one is economics, right? It really seems that the new economic team, although loyal to Xi, is less experienced than some of the other candidates who he could have chosen. And as you know, Chinese markets crashed today, and I should tell people we're taping this on the Monday after the Congress and two days before this is going to run as a podcast. So, you know, markets crashed today, so it seems like domestic sentiment, right, shares the assessment I just gave you. What's your take, and are we looking at a much more statist economic policy approach going forward? Yeah. Well, I think in my own view, there's sort of a lot of noise around Xi Jinping's economic team being sufficiently competent. But in my sense, it's too soon to tell. And it may be that in the end, that's it is ultimately noise. Like, For example, the likely new premier, Li Chang, who currently is the Shanghai Party secretary, is you know, painted in the media, it seems, as having no credentials at all, really, for the post of premier and, and maybe being very statist in orientation and so on. I got to say, that seems a bit silly to me. The facts are that uh, Li Chang has served as either the governor or the party secretary of all of the major economic powerhouses on China's east coast, Zhejiang and Jiangsu provinces, and also Shanghai municipality, where the private sector is the dominant force in the local economy. And in fact, uh, my understanding from talking to contacts over there is that uh, in Shanghai anyway, foreign business in particular has seen him as, as pretty welcoming. Obviously, he was the guy who presided over this terrible lockdown in Shanghai, right? And that was yeah. uh, terribly embarrassing and, you know, suggested some concerns about competence. But I think we should remember, too, that, you know, these provinces and municipalities where he's been serving, they have GDPs as large as major European countries, right? So they're very complex. By contrast, you know, the current premier, Li Keqiang, he had served in the sort of economic backwater uh, Rust Belt province of Liaoning before going to the center to serve as a vice premier ahead of getting the top job. So, you know, I think maybe this is overdone a bit. It's also important to remember that the state council, China's cabinet, is no longer really the designer of economic policy in Xi Jinping's revamped policy ecosystem world, right? It's it's, it's the implementer of those policies that get formulated in the new party leading groups that she formed in the last five or 10 years that touch on the economy. So in other words, a premier no longer has the kind of power and therefore responsibility that maybe Zhu Rongji or, or even Wen Jiabao had had when they were premier. And then there's also what we spoke earlier about the political report framing the ideological context for policy. So in his report, Xi Jinping highlighted, I think, an economic approach that I would describe as a fortress economy, right, where they will stress self-sufficiency in technology, food, energy, and supply chain security, these sort of things. The new Politburo contains three former defense industry experts, four people with science backgrounds and state firms and state agencies. So more than a quarter of the new lineup is what we might call techno-nationalists, right? So in the context of what Xi Jinping laid out about large national efforts to have needed breakthroughs on these critical technologies like semiconductors, these people are actually logical choices, I think, for those jobs in the context of the frame that has been set. You know, I'm not suggesting by any means that I agree this is the right approach or that it's likely to be successful, but only that the logic makes some sense, right? Indeed, for the outgoing leadership, a key framing from Xi in his last work report was the importance of de-risking and deleveraging the finance system. So we saw officials well-suited to that task, like the outgoing um, vice premier in charge of the day-to-day economy, Liu He, in the Politburo. Now she has laid out these new priorities, and the new leaders seem kind of 
aligned to that agenda. So just in closing, I mean, what might be a fair point, though, is whether the likes of Li Chang and Ding Xuexiang, who will likely be number two on the economy, currently uh, Xi's chief of staff, are just pawns of Xi Jinping, right? And and will not be able to stand up to him to offer truth to power, as, as people often say. But that presumes that this was happening in the last leadership group. And in my assessment, it really wasn't. You know, as we discussed earlier, despite all the talk of pushback from Li Keqiang, the current premier, there was never any evidence in my mind that he actually was altering, really, even at the margins, uh, you know, Xi Jinping's desired economic policy course. So bottom line, I think the whole suggestion of incompetence and insuitability is a bit hyped, you know, and we'll just have to wait and see how the new group performs in office. Yeah, good point. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Chris Johnson. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Chris, one of the things I was interested in is when do these changes take effect, right? When does one guy move out of an office and another guy move in? Right. <laughs> how, does that, how, does that, how does that work in China? <laughs> it's a complex minuet, unfortunately. <laughs> um, on, the, on the party side, of course, the jobs are immediate, right? So the, the new members of the Politburo are obviously in their posts as members of the Politburo. And in the coming weeks, and it won't be many weeks, you know, just the next couple of weeks, for all of those kind of positions, so the new head of the party's uh, personnel arm, the organization department, the new head of the propaganda department, and so on, that will be rolled out very, very quickly. And then we will see kind of musical chairs in the key provincial assignments, you know, these big cities like Shanghai and Guangdong province, Chongqing in the West, that will all happen as well. So the new guys will be realigned uh, there. Where it will take longer is on those state government posts in the cabinet that I described earlier. So mainly the economic posts. So that would be the premier, the executive vice premier, the number two, and also that vice critical vice premier who oversees sort of the day-to-day operations of the economy, the job that Leo He currently has. We won't see the turnover there until next spring when they have the big meeting of their legislature that rubber stamps all those decisions. But we can see from, at least in the Politburo Standing Committee, for the lineup by rank order, roughly who's going to get what job. So that's why we know that Li Chang is almost certain to be the premier and, and so on. Gotcha. All right, let's talk about Taiwan. Um, obviously, a critically important issue. Absolutely. Um, much of what I read over the weekend, you know, suggested that she signaled a slightly more belligerent tone on Taiwan in his speech to the Congress. Some of the stuff I read also suggested that his personnel changes at the top of the Chinese military mean that the Chinese are preparing for war. And by the way, we also had the U.S. Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Gilday, 
say last week that China could invade Taiwan as early as this year or next. How about that? Um, <laughs> which is even earlier than the 2027 timetable that is often talked about in in policy circles here in Washington. When you and John Culver were on the show just a while ago talking about Taiwan in the aftermath of the visit of Speaker Pelosi, John said the Chinese still see an attack on Taiwan as a crisis to be avoided rather than an opportunity to be seized. And I'm wondering if you still see that as the right assessment given what just happened in the Congress. How do you right. think about the Taiwan issue, you know, in the context of the Congress? Yeah, I don't think it moved the dial much in, in terms of Taiwan. And let's address for a moment, you know, this uh, even more advanced timeline. I mean, <laughs> in my view, this is absurd. You know, I mean, there are certain signs that if the Chinese were looking to take military action this year or even next, we would be seeing. In fact, you mentioned John, he's written very eloquently about uh, some of the very obvious signs that we would see, such as a stop in conscription demobilization, you know, putting the economy on a war footing, you know, all these sort of things. None of these things are happening. I'm not suggesting that that makes it impossible, but just that it seems very unlikely. And in, in my assessment, it seems that what I would call Taiwan invasion hysteria seems to <laughs> sort of gripped Washington. You know, it's, it's, it's my sense that there is no sort of compelling intelligence uh, reason to believe this. Uh, David Sanger of the New York Times had a piece some time ago, you know, also talking about this. Well, it could be sooner than even 2027, maybe 2024. But that seems to be an assessment for the Biden administration based on, you know, the calendar, I think, perhaps more than any sense or understanding of Chinese leadership intentions. So, you know, let's look at the calendar quickly. We've got our own midterms, obviously, where it looks increasingly likely that the Republicans will control at least one House, maybe two. That could mean that things like the Taiwan Policy Act, which are very controversial, could be you know back on the table pretty quickly in a new Congress. I would expect Speaker McCarthy to follow up Speaker Pelosi's visit, you know, very very quickly. Likewise, Taiwan is having these municipal elections roughly at the same time as our midterms, where the KMT, China's favored uh, sort of party on Taiwan, could suffer an electoral wipeout and effectively become no longer viable. And then we have our own presidential election in 2024 and also a Taiwan presidential election in 2024, where whoever succeeds uh, President Tsai, the current leader of Taiwan, is likely to be more independence-oriented. So when we put all these pieces together, you know, I can sort of see why uh, some elements of the administration are ringing the bell. Obviously, this suits, you know, uh, budgets and, and fights going on inside the Pentagon about whether we're, you know, doing enough. And I think that's a fair point to respond, you know, to this emerging challenge after a lot of distraction uh, for 20 years in, in the Middle East and, and elsewhere um, and Afghanistan. So these are all real things. But in terms of the Congress, my read of the Taiwan content of, of Xi Jinping's political report on the subject uh, was actually that it was pretty calming. Uh, you know, basically he did for the first time, it was not in his last report, and I don't think it was in the previous one either. I have this line about we refuse to renounce or promise to renounce the use of force, right? Um, and that was new, and that sounds very menacing. But if you read the sort of words that came right after that, he said that threat of military force is related, is directed only at external forces who are interfering. Well, I wonder who that is. <laughs> and Taiwan separatist forces. So basically, he seemed to be saying, dear United States, dear President Biden, if you stop pushing the envelope on the one China policy, right, eroding these commitments, talking about defense of Taiwan publicly and so on and so forth, I've got no reason to undertake military action. On the personnel appointments, you know, it's not surprising. For one thing, this, this one gentleman, very close 
those breaking those age norms. He's 72 years old already. Um, he's now the top general in the PLA. He's very close to Xi Jinping. He's also one of the few senior PLA generals that actually has combat experience. He fought in the uh, Sino-Vietnamese conflict in 1979 because that went so well for the, the PLA. But the second ranking military officer uh, and vice chairman of the military commission used to run the Eastern Theater Command. This is what they call it now, the area opposite Taiwan after their force restructuring. So, you know, it looks a bit like they're preparing for for Taiwan uh, conflict. My sense is they do still see it as a crisis to be avoided rather than an opportunity to be seized. And a lot of it's going to be dependent upon what we in the United States and the authorities on Taiwan do. Yeah. I would point out, too, that uh, both the DNI, Avril Haines, and the director of CIA, Bill Burns, have said publicly that that it's not the short term they're worried about, it's the longer term later this decade and early into the next decade. So just want to... Yes, and I, I agree with that. And I think it, that underscores the fact that we don't have, at least right now, probably any compelling intelligence in that critical plans and intentions area, as opposed to, say, capabilities analysis, where obviously the Chinese are building a very formidable military enterprise. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Chris, along the same lines that we've been talking about in terms of policy implications, you know, an even more powerful she is probably not a welcome development in Washington. What do you think his speech and the personnel choices that he has made tell us about how he's thinking about the U.S.-China relationship? Right. Well, I definitely think uh, the speech, as I pointed out earlier, uh, paints a pretty dark picture, right, of his assessment of the threat, as he would put it, that uh, that China is under from a hostile West, right? Um, and I think this goes back to what we've discussed previously on the podcast about this ideological framing, right, of the global uh, state of affairs, right, where in China's increasing dialectical sense, the U.S. is an implacable enemy, right, out to uh, subvert China's rise. Uh, they look at the Biden administration. They've had, you know, two years now to take the measure. And they basically see the Trump administration. And some Chinese I speak to say it's worse, you know. And we see, for example, the, uh, the very uh, stern technology restrictions that the administration uh, put out uh, two weeks ago now on semiconductors, right? This is, in effect, to some degree, a declaration of economic war on, on China. So very, very, very strong. 
So therefore, you know, Russia is the natural partner in that enterprise, which does explain why Xi Jinping got, is so buddy-buddy <laughs> with Putin, despite the, uh, the challenges they faced with that decision. And Europe is the swing, you know, internationally. So it, as long as that's the case, I think Xi Jinping's view is, um, you know, the U.S. is out to get me. And I want to show a couple of things. One, through this sort of spirit of struggle, you know, riddled throughout the speech are references to struggle and standing up to bullying from the U.S. and pressure from the U.S., U.S. sanctions, what they call uh, long-arm jurisdiction, right, which is things like uh, the SWIFT episode with Russia, you know, these sort of things. It's riddled all throughout the report. So it's a pretty dark picture, I think, of, of what he's saying about U.S.-China relations. And then I think, though, on the... Um, and the personnel side sort of backs this up. So once again, violating these age restrictions, Wang Yi, the current uh, the foreign minister, is being retained. He's been promoted to the Politburo. So he certainly will replace uh, Yang Jiechi, a longtime U.S. expert, by the way, in the Politburo and as sort of the chief person running the foreign affairs bureaucracy inside China. Wang is an interesting character. He's, he's very cosmopolitan and suave, but um, in the ecosystem that Xi Jinping has created, he himself is been something of a uh, what they call a wolf warrior <laughs> diplomat um, in, in recent years. But I think it's also a sign of some of their nervousness. In other words, you know, the meme that's generally painted is, well, this is all a sign of swagger and confidence and so on. The retention of Wang Yi, I think, to me, is a move towards stability, right, which suggests that you think there's a lot of chaos in the international system as a result of the war with uh, between Russia and Ukraine and, you know, this sort of what they perceive to be unremittent hostility from the U.S. So all all of that put together, I think, doesn't uh, paint a very hopeful picture for the forward trajectory of, of U.S.-China relations, at least um, for the foreseeable future. That said, you know, there is something called political agency, right? <laughs> and people can choose, right, to, to go down a different path. As you know well, I'm, I'm not someone who feels that we're locked into a course of inevitable conflict in a Thucydides trap or something like this. My, my view is that, you know, these things can change, but both leaders need to decide they want to change it. And for their own domestic reasons to some degree, and, and perhaps just the nature of how the relationship is being portrayed in both countries, that looks increasingly hard to uh, think will happen. Speaking of leaders, there's also, Chris, as you know, been some press speculation that she's dragging his feet on agreeing to a meeting between himself and President Biden at the G20 meeting in Bali. Do you think that is accurate? And if so, what signal would that show that, uh, that she's trying to send here? Well, my sense is uh, it probably isn't accurate. I, I, I don't know. Obviously, I, I, I'm not sure. I think what has been true is that we've seen from Xi Jinping a lot of intransigence. So, for example, as you know well, in previous interactions between the two presidents, the, the sort of video conferences that they've been having, you know, a strong push from President Biden and his administration to engage the Chinese on discussions of what the administration rightly calls guardrails. I think this has been a very innovative and, and useful uh, um, sort of effort by the administration. Guardrails meaning, you know, avoidance, the avoidance of conflict, obviously, and even the avoidance of the potential for accidents, um, having some discussions in the nuclear space, say, for example, or, you know, how we interact with each other at sea, you know, these sort of critical areas. And the Chinese have completely stonewalled, you know, on all of those. So there is some suggesting that Xi Jinping has been playing this game. My own sense, what I caught in the article that discussed this that was very interesting to me was the administration flatly denied that was happening. It, it, you know, from what little I read, I'm not obviously a U.S. expert, but it seems to me the administration rarely goes on the record with formal denials 
like that. And so that suggested to me that they felt confident anyway, that at least discussions are, are taking place. It is certainly possible that Xi Jinping could want to show his peak over things like the semiconductor restrictions I just mentioned. You know, that's a big deal by not having the meeting with Biden. But I don't think it helps him. You know, one thing that's interesting, a critical sort of test, right, of a leader in uh, in China for decades now is for the top leader is I have to show I can handle the number one relationship, right, um, the United States. And so newly minted in his third term, which is, as we know, an aberration, I think he's going to have a strong instinct. And I think it also suits, you know, both leaders' interests, really. It'd be the first opportunity for them to sit down in person. Countries in the region, certainly in Asia, and other U.S. allies and partners, I think, also are pressuring the administration to sit down with Xi Jinping because, you know, we don't want this adversarial downward spiral in the relationship and so on. So there's a lot of incentives, I think, for both sides to go ahead with the meeting. Chris, one last question. A couple of the people, a couple of the commentators who I've read this weekend have suggested that if you look at the semiconductor decision by the United States, if you look at Xi's Xi's speech and all the things that you pointed out, these folks have said, there's no doubt that we're in a Cold War now, right? It's not that one's coming, we're in one now. How do you react to that? Well, it, it's feeling increasingly that way. I guess, you know, obviously a big chunk of that depends on how you define a Cold War, right? So if we decide we're going to follow the same playbook we did in the original Cold War, China is not the Soviet Union, right? They're integrated into the global economy. We have a deep economic relationship with them we didn't have with the Soviet Union. And that lack of an economic relationship facilitated the U.S. effort to sort of go full, you know, competition, full-throated competition with the Soviet Union across all domains. That's not the case with China because of the economic relationship, because of the relationships economically our allies and partners have with China. So whereas it seems to me the uh, relationship is in trouble, there's no question. Uh, I don't think we're in a Cold War. My framing of it has been the administration describes where we are now as strategic competition, right? And and China responds, well, that's inappropriate and we're not going to sign on to that and so on. I do believe we've left strategic competition in the dust, uh, especially in the wake of the release of the national security strategy by the Biden administration. And we're probably now in full up strategic rivalry. But in my mind, there's another step, which would be what I would call strategic enmity. In other words, you know, I know X policy is bad for me, but it's 2% worse for you. So I'm going to do it anyway. You know, that's the kind of rivalry and enmity that we saw in the Cold War. And I just don't think we're quite there yet. But um, we're headed in that direction. And I think that's uh, deeply troubling. And then one more question, and I know the folks who worry about time are going to be mad at me here, but I think this is a really important question. So what advice do you give to U.S. companies who have to do business in China, right, to be able to sustain themselves, right, as a business? What advice do you give to them in terms of how do they, how do they manage this relationship between the United States and China going forward? Let's see if we can do this in a couple of minutes. Sure. No, I I think it's an incredibly difficult situation for companies. You know, they really are becoming the proverbial meat in the sandwich (laughs) these days between trying to do what they need to do for those companies who do uh, derive a lot of their profits uh, from the China market or just want to be there for supply chain and other reasons and concerns of an increasingly sort of hawkish U.S. government. And how do they avoid getting around that? My sense has been, and this started, I think, in the Trump administration and the advice I've given them is that increasingly you have have to focus on what makes sense 
for your interests as a company, not fearing what the Chinese side or the United States side, you know, might do to you, right? And uh, therefore, it's important for companies to perhaps do as much as they can, but be as quiet as they can, right? You know, don't make missteps in terms of, oh, condemning the Chinese approach to Xinjiang, right? You know, which is uh, blown up in the face of a couple of companies. And also, you know, doing what you can in terms of investment and so on, while staying clear of those challenges. I mean, it's an incredibly difficult situation. But what we see, I think, very strongly is that while decoupling in the technology space seems to be happening, and perhaps at an accelerated rate in other areas, like the financial relationship between the U.S. and China, that's not happening. So, for example, why is the only area, right, that we've seen any cooperation between the two sides in the last five to ten years was this controversy over the delisting of Chinese companies, right, on the uh, American uh, stock exchanges over these accounting uh, challenges and so on? Why did the Chinese fully capitulate, you know, in that area when they never capitulated on anything. It's because we have a $5 trillion financial relationship between the two countries. China knows as long as they have a non-convertible currency. And even after that, they they need those investment flows coming in. So I don't think, you know, we're doomed. And so there's still room for companies. The, the other piece of advice I give them is recognize, though, full-throatedly that the goal of the Chinese is to come up with their own, what they call domestic champions. In other words, their own Apples, their own Microsofts, you know, these sort of things. And therefore, the long-term goal is to replace your firm in uh, in the China market. So the question then becomes, how do I operate in such a way that extends my timeline before that event ultimately happens? And that's the advice I give to companies. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Great topic and great timing. And thank you so much. My pleasure, Michael. Always a pleasure. That was Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.